This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Welcome to the Three Lions Podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. Now, I sincerely hope you've enjoyed the recent episodes that have come your way so far this year. Here we are, the fourth release of 2022 and all with no games played. Still plenty to talk about. Now, it was just over a year ago that I began reading Graham Morse's biography of his father-in-law, Walter Winterbottom. And that was a book that resulted in me speaking with Graham about Walter, which in turn was the start of this little mini-series of England managers. Because over the last year, and especially in the lockdowns we endured, I turned to reading a little more. Although I have to confess I'm not the quickest when it comes to it. But over the last year, I read and spoke with three authors who have written about England managers. And here we are, as I say, in 2022, and it's time to learn about another one. managers as many of you know as many of you be aware we've uh, we're working our way through them here on the three lions podcast walter winsbottom alf ramsey don revy amazingly there was only three up until 1977 which is where we are now uh, and i'd like to introduce mike miles to the three lions podcast because he is the author of ron greenwood a biography of football's forgotten manager mike hello there Good morning. You're well. Good to speak to you. Likewise, likewise. I've got the book here, uh, which I've I've read through. Ron was the officially the the fourth England manager. Um, a, a really enjoyable read, and and as with many of the the England books that or managers books that I've been reading, I'm I'm always learning, constantly learning about them. But perhaps you just maybe introduce yourself and and tell us how the the book came about initially before we get into a. Uh, a chat about Ron Greenwood. Well, I think I am first and foremost a West Ham fan. I am of a certain age where I watched West Ham a good deal in the flesh from 1968 onwards, when obviously he he was the manager. So there's a sort of a personal interest there. But when two or three years ago I was you know, casting around for subjects to write about, and there's obviously an awful lot being written about West Ham, as a club in various sort of forms. I couldn't find anything, surprisingly, about Ron Greenwood. And when you look at the contemporary managers, the Don Reeves of this world, the Shankleys, etc., they've all had at least one book on them, if not more. And even his successor at West Ham, John Lyle, has, I think, to my knowledge, has had two books, two biographies written of him. So this struck me as odd and fortuitous, because obviously... Yeah, you know, it was a you know a nice little sort of a gap there yeah. to you know attack, which is really where I you know I was sort of you know coming into. So as I said, it was from very much from as a West Ham point of view, but of course the latter part of his career was as manager of England. 
So you know, naturally, that formed part, you know, an important, very important, you know, part of the part of the narrative. Yeah. So that's really you know the background, you know, to you know to the book itself. Do you follow England much, or I mean, obviously being a West Ham fan, but do you remember his time at England? I mean, I do. I, I do. I mean, I I don't go to watch them in the flesh very much at the moment, but I'm as you know as much an England fan as you know as, as the next man. Yeah. So yeah, when the you know the time's appropriate, I wear that hat as well yeah. as you know, the claret and blue one. Yes. And it's yes. nice, you know, to see you know current players like you know Declan Rice having mm. such an impact on the current England side. Absolutely, yeah, he's uh, turning into a, a really great player for England. And I mean, alas, he probably won't be with us after the summer. But yeah, that's that's the way football goes. But yeah. it's it's nice to have him while he's there. Yes, no, he's he's fully appreciated by. By many England fans, I mean, well, well, Ron Greenwood. He came into the job after a bit of a bit of a turbulent time with England, didn't he? There was the the whole Don Revy and the the World Cup failures, and the the book is titled "Football's Forgotten Manager." And I was thinking that if you were to ask your regular England fan on the street to perhaps name five England managers off the top of their head, I can imagine Ron Greenwood wouldn't be very often in those top five no I, unfortunately i think we're right and there is a book by henry winter i can't remember the title but it's again it's about england england managers i mean he's a journalist you know a contemporary journalist quite well known one and i think he i think i mentioned in the book i mean ron greenwell gets literally i think three lines i think it's a quote from peter shilton and that's it such a shame and I think that may have been what triggered this idea. I mean, there are other reasons what I think he's the forgotten manager, but in an England context, the point you, know, you raised there exactly is the right one. But also here we have you know, a contemporary journalist looking at this subject and dismissing it. I mean, yes, you could say he's good, bad or indifferent, but at least the, to admit he's there, he had a role. He was in the role for, what, five years and played a significant number. It's not as though he was like there. You know, I mean, when he was made... Um, interim manager, whatever they called it, you know, in the beginning, had he left after that period, fair enough. But the fact that he went on to a European Championship, a World Cup, etc., at least I think deserves comment. So I think that was really where it was coming from. There's and and at each stage, and I meant, I mean, even yeah, you know, to go forward when when he died, you know, the FA in their wisdom didn't even ask clubs to have a minute silence. Which yeah. I thought was all oh, right. You could argue it's a different FA. Maybe now it would be different. But even so, it was indicative, you know, of players like I think George Best got them. I think even Peter Osgood. But yet here's an England manager who didn't even deserve that. Which again just seemed to me to sum up this sort of attitude almost, you know, towards his towards his career. Yeah, no, it's such a shame. Yeah, you know, again, well, yeah, when you, I mean, I didn't remember of the time. But when you read about it, you're thinking, cracky, it just seems, to, you know, this this picture that emerges of this man who had been, if you like, you know, put aside. I mean, Don Revy has been, if you like, cast aside, but for a different reason. You know, it was the nature of his leaving. Yeah. So to that extent, he was like this, if you like, you know, the black sheep of the England managers. And therefore, he's sort of cast into this sort of special darkness. <laughs> but... Yeah, with Greenwood, I mean, a totally different man, a totally different character. It's a, you know, surprising that you know this the situation was allowed you know, allowed to exist. Yeah. Well, 
we can't talk about the England side of things without knowing the, the backstory of, of his time with West Ham. As you say, you're a West Ham fan, so you are probably the best to educate us a little bit about Ron. But he was born 11th of November 1921. He's actually from, from up north, wasn't he, near Burnley? Near, near Burnley, very much a northerner. I think he always considered himself yeah, a northerner right. in, in his soul. And he, I mean, as as any child does, um, you and I played football all day, every day, from, from dawn till dusk. What I didn't realise was he didn't go straight into to football. He was a he was actually a sign writer and had quite a uh, an interesting job in the fact that his work he he done was it the mobile team sheets for for the FA Cup finals where uh, yeah I mean it was sort of other sort of thing I think his there were family connections and one of them is that they tell you that they're actually working at you know at Wembley Stadium, you know, doing things like this, you know, this sort of sign writing. And in those days, of course, before you had electronic scoreboards, everything had to be done manually. And someone had to sort of run around, if you like, you know, during the game, indicating things like, you know, the score, etc. <laughs> and the big games, I think he couldn't get. And I think he finally got a Rugby League Cup final oh, I think no. in, the, in the late 30s. Yeah, and that was like sort of the big moment. So I think it, one of his like small claims to fame, but some of the signs within Wembley that were still were still there that he had actually <laughs> produced wearing his other hat. And indeed, in the latter part of his playing career, when he played for Fulham, I mean, he, he played almost for two seasons in the mid fifties after he left Chelsea. He was quite unhappy as a, as a sort of player, you know, and and with the club, and he did seriously think about going back to. I don't, you know, had coaching not come out, he could have. This was, if you like, his fallback career. He wouldn't yeah. have opened a pub or anything <laughs> like that. He'd have gone back to, you know, sign writing. Sign writing. It's amazing. It's it's a, a lovely little story. Part of the war effort, he joined the the RAF. But he mentioned there his his playing career: Chelsea, uh, Bradford Park Avenue, Brentford, and Fulham. He had one England B appearance and. He was on the verge of of making the the fifty four England World Cup squad um, yeah, as a centre half. His playing position yeah, because I think that the established one I think was Neil Franklin in those days, and of course he went off to play in South America, which I mean he was personal and sort of non sort of forgot. So there was you know, him, you know there was a vacancy at centre half, albeit you know he had played largely his career was like I mean his best periods with Brentford. Right. In what was then the second division, now the championship, and it was only with Chelsea that he played in you know, the first division. So that sort of appeared until the mid fifties, and so there was sort of sort of a hint at the time, but he he never really sort of I think got that close. I think there were always sort of sort of others, Un- unlike say for example Alf Ramsey. I mean, because one of the other things you know I, I raise in the book is that you know the certain sort of parallels between the two men. I men of Essex, etc. Yep, yep. you know, but about stretching it too far. But I think just you know, to digress, I think you know that the main sort of parallel, if you like, which drew me in was not just much the two men as if if you like their personalities as two two managers. But they way the ways they dealt with Bobby Moore. That was to my mind, you know, the, the if you like, was the big link between the two of them. Right. And that, you know, whereas I think one of Greenwood's weaknesses as a manager, he was, I mean, it's said he, 
his man management was poor. But I think one of the reasons is he trusted players. Yeah. He believed in treating them as adults. I'm talking as of club sort of players. And of course, players didn't respond the same way. I mean, West Ham is like many clubs in that period had a big drinking culture. And the leaders of that culture were Bobby Moore, Jimmy Greaves, when he came about, obviously with England was also sort of part of that. Johnny Byrne, of course, was at West Ham as well in the mid, yeah. in the mid 60s. So you can see there was a sort of link and Greenwood allowed that to flourish to the detriment, ultimately, I think, of the team and of the club and his career in the latter. You know, and I think Blackpool in 1971, if you like, was what you want to call it, almost you know, the inevitable outcome of that. Yeah. But within the England context, of course, was Ramsey. He was aware of what was happening with these players. He saw that there was this clique, these drinking players who were upsetting the old, and he sat down on it. I think that was the sort of key one. He wasn't prepared to let that go on. Right. And there are various stories. I mean, when you're, you're looking at Bobby Moore's career, how close he would sail to that wind. Not just once or twice, but certainly in his early part, the, you know, the early 60s, because Ramsey came in, I think, 62, so the first couple of years. But as it got nearer to the World Cup, you know, Ramsey was much more, right, you know, trying to sit on it, whereas Moore was always trying to be Bobby Moore. He was never ultimately compliant. You, you know, you come across these instances where he'd still be that boy who'd say, right, where's the teacher? You know, I'm sneaking off to the bike shed for a fag behind <laughs> his back. That sort of attitude, right? Almost, yeah, two fingers, and almost, yeah, to the latter part of his England career, and you know, even to the, you know, the early seventies, you know, when when Ramsey up to when Ramsey was fired, yeah. So there, there was sort of, you know, that was an important thing, I think, as well. I think where the, you know, the, the you know, the two men, the two managers, did diverge, and I think Moore was just the, if you like, the, you. Whereas other people, like say Jeff Hurst, were much more willing. To you know, knuckle under to the you know, much more, I think, probably more self disciplined in that regard, yeah, and not as naturally talented a player as more. So, we're more prepared, you know, to, to work on their game and, and to listen to the you know, the, the coach. Oh. Well, we'll touch on Bobby Moore in a moment because that was fine. I, uh, I do a version, <laughs> well, I because it was it's it's an education to me because I wasn't aware of the, the situation, but for Ron to get into coaching it was the meeting with jimmy hill i think wasn't it which sort of started the uh well, the I, think, ball rolling. I think jimmy hill met when they were playing for, for fulham and they became friends but also you know that this coaching bug if you like because as overlapping the latter part of ron's playing career i mean he went to places like i think ealing grammar school and oxford university he was there three years which, of course, where he met the man who would later appoint him as England manager. So, there's a, you know, there's a link you know, which yep. stretches far into the future there. But the likes of Hill, I think, they, I think you know, they both realised, you know, that coaching was something for them. And, of course, Walter Winterbottom, as a coach, not the England manager head, hat, but yep. the coach yep. hat was, of course, where, the, you know, he became, I mean, he was described also, you know, as a disciple of Winterbottom. And so yes. coaching, because obviously at that time, you know, coaching, if not a dirty word, was not, you know, something which was, shall we say, widespread within English football. I mean, even at an international level, I think, we you know, again, going back to Walter Winterbottom, you know, he would find resistance from players who just felt it was too, it wasn't for them. 
Yeah. You know, what was his sort of, his sort of coaching? Whereas Greenwood's attitude was, this is what's going to come in. Of course, you had the Hungarians in 53 open his eyes literally. He was there, wasn't he? He was. He was, you know, he, he saw that he saw the sort of the game. And I think that was, again, it, you know, it, if you like, that flame was slowly, you know, like a gaslight, you know, yeah. the flame was slowly you know, building up, you know, it didn't just happen overnight in the catch, but you could see this over a period of years as he got involved with coaching, albeit to the very junior level, and, and his playing career came to an end. So he, he met people like Jimmy Hill, and like mine, but particularly Walter Winterbottom, who I think was the main, in terms of coaching, was the main influence. And I think the feeling was mutual. I mean, he saw Ron Greenwood as someone who had, you know, had a career as a coach, and if you like, someone that could. And I think throughout Greenwood's career, Winterbottom features at different stages. For example, as a coach, obviously, but when the West Ham job came up, Winterbottom was, if you like, putting the word around it. Because then, because Ron was then assistant manager at Arsenal. Yeah. And so... It was Winterbottom who was sort of, if you like, putting the right word in Reg Pratt's ear at West Ham that here's a man you you needed to talk to if this is the way you wanted the club to go. So that influence it was something which you know, stretched really through you know, throughout Ron Greenwood's career, you know, um, uh, from a you know, as a coach, you know, rather than as a, certainly as, as a player. Yeah. So it was it was 1961, as you say, he'd had a period of time as at Arsenal which which didn't really go to plan or, or how he may be envisaged but was it Ted Fenton had been dismissed at West Ham and it was then with, with no previous connections to to the Hammers that he became the coach there didn't he yeah I mean he was only the fourth manager since they were formed back in 1900 right. and all the previous ones had been West Ham men in to very you know they'd come through the city I mean Fenton himself had been a player Albeit he, as a manager, he'd been elsewhere, but he had that background. Whereas Greenwood had no West Ham connection. And he himself said at the time, you know, he only had this vague idea as to who they were. Because at that time, they'd only been in the first division three years. And until then, they'd been in the second division, I think 1932. Right. So they had no history of, if you like, success. And there was really, you know, they were this sort of so so club from East London like a local club right. with no national or much less international standing. So when Greenwood sort of, you know, went there, I think you know, that clearly he brought you know, over the first few years a degree of success as well. And I think, I think in the book, I bring the first section of the success of it, you know, it's 1966, but obviously with the World Cup and the three players. And I think, you know, I don't think anyone has said that, you know, it, that they were there because of the coaching of Greenwood. I mean, even more himself would attest that, that you know, he had had, certainly you know, when he was you know, in those earlier years, I think where they fell apart was on a more personal level. You know, more wanted to take his life wearing Greenwood another, and they, you know, they wouldn't sort of meet. But on a coaching level, I think they would all agree to you know, the strengths of his coaching and, you know, and what he'd done in, in taking them to that level of, of players. And I think at this, and at the same time when he was there, of course, he, he not only won things with West Ham, but he'd won a European trophy. Again, only the second British club to win one after Tottenham in '63. So his international reputation as a coach was was taking off as well. 
So I think that's an important strand. When I think when you come back to the England situation, he wasn't just an English coach, a British coach. He already had an, you know, well, a European reputation. Mm. So he was, a, you know, he was a known factor, if you like, in that sort of wider, you know, at a time when you know, English football was just coming out of that insularity. You know, our clubs were beginning to win European trophies, but there was still an attitude that, I mean, that, you know, the Europeans, they were there, they did things differently. But because we were English, you know, we could always win things the English way. And I think when you looked at the, you know, the, if you like the history, I think you've, if you've come across this, when you look at the history of the English football team in the latter, well, post Ramsey. And I think you can see that, you know, the Europeans have gone off and done their own thing and were becoming good, whereas the English weren't. And obviously, the re- you know, the results, you know, sort of be that. But, there, you know, there is also, there was, you know, that divergence in attitude towards, yeah. you know, the way, you know, things, you know, they did. Well, you mentioned, like, he, he looked at things differently. Um, I think it was, it was Germany's manager, Helmut Schoen, is it? I think yeah. he, he he said that he he thought European, unlike a lot of people in English football. He said that he can see beyond Dover. Picture. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that was a nice nice way of phrasing that. Yeah, you know, a, a nice sort of quote. But certainly, I think that's actually there's a, a lot to that. Mm. Yeah, I think you know, the, the better English manager or the better British managers. I mean, accepted you. Know, you had to take on a certain amount of that. You know. European sort of way because you know they were going developing different ways, and I think that again coming back to the international sort you know sort of, you could see it you know with, with you know with Ramsey in the latter part of his reign he was still fixed you know he hadn't moved yeah and I think you know the best example I thought was when they lost three one to West Germany in nineteen seventy two and I think the quarterfinals I think of the European Championship when they were just taken apart and yet when they went to berlin for the return i think he played peter story and told him to go and kick lots of germans and they had to get back two goals i mean the attitudinal thing was as much of the thing okay you know, you go for it i might you might lose 2-1 but you know you go back but no you know you go out and go for a nil nil draw and and tell your players just to go around knocking the opposition who just looked incredulous and thinking we you know, what are they doing? You know, what, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, so that was, I mean, this was 1972, but it's just, again, it's where I think, you know, this, you know, attitudinal thing is still, still prevalent. You know, we had to lose that game or, and games. We had not to go to 74 and 78 to finally, you know, for the coin to drop. Mm. I'm thinking, God, you know, you know, perhaps they've got a point over there. You know, maybe we're not as good as we think we are despite what Liverpool were doing in Europe and obviously other clubs were doing on the international scale. Well, maybe, you know, we're not up to it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I wonder if obviously he'd seen the likes of um, the, the Hungary game, but with West Ham, they had this, as you say, they, they won the European cup winners cup after winning the, the FA cup. And I guess having this European experience much like I guess Bobby Robson did with Ipswich, gave them an insight into different ways of of playing, different methods, um, which perhaps, okay, Don Revy had European football as well, um, but Ron Greenwood took it in a a different way. Yeah, I think he, 
I mean, I mean, he preceded really in terms of he would prepare dossiers for his players, and but also would encourage them to go and watch the opposition themselves, you know, to see what you know they were doing, how they played, and how they were. In other words, prepare the team yeah. correctly. Don't just assume you can turn up and beat them because they're Johnny Foreigner. You know, you have to get things right beforehand to compete on the pitch. You know, again, was you know, was one of one of his strengths, yeah. which I think you know, unfortunately, on the sort of club level, but he could take into the international scene later on. Yeah, well, with the the sixty six World Cup win for England, obviously, there's the the three West Ham players, more Hurst, Peters, and he, Ron Greenwood, obviously had those three players and and said that. Some of the goals scored in the World Cup were were direct from sort of the West Ham training ground. Well, I think you can pinch it to, to, to two. There's the winner against Argentina yep. in the quarterfinals, which is across on the left, Peters to Hurst running across the defender. Classic West Ham near post. If there was one tactic that they were using in the sort of mid to late sixties, it was that near post cross. And in the final, where Leo went. First England goal, Hoare's fouled, takes the free kick over to Hurst, who heads in. You can see if you watch it now, even now, you watch Hurst, he's looking for that run. Across, again, same run across the defender to the near post and and in. So I think those are the two, if you like, outstanding examples where you could point directly to a training field in East London and say, that's where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. But it was... Uh, one of those players, obviously, is is Bobby Moore, who who every England fan will will be aware of. But obviously, he was his West Ham captain. But I wasn't aware of perhaps the the as you sort of briefly mentioned there that maybe the distance between the pair off the pitch and just how close Bobby Moore came to maybe not. Being part of the England team in '66 because of a because of a contract issue. Yes, I think Bobby Moore soon worked out that you know he had a real value. And bearing in mind, you know, Greenwood came to the club it was when the maximum wage was abolished. Yeah. So, and that's something discussing contracts was something he always hated. And Moore was always the last man to to agree a contract. So he. He became, of course, aware of his own sort of value. And of course, when you get to 66, the impact between the two men was such that, I mean, he dropped more from the captaincy earlier that season, I think in April, because he felt he was, you know, he wasn't playing for West Ham. He was playing for his England place. Yeah. So, yeah, technically, it was a point where he was actually out of contract at the end of June, which is why they had to get Greenwood in with this one month contract so that he could technically. Otherwise, he would not have been within the FIFA regulations because he was out of a club to play in the World Cup, which you know, seems outstanding now. Yeah, but, yeah. You, but there's numerous stories. I mean, you know, where you know Ramsey you know, tells Greenwood, right, come to the Hendon Hotel with a contract. Literally, turns up. They go in a room. There's no conversation. He signs it, leaves. He's gone within a minute or two. Such an important event you happened. Think, yeah. And, he, and and again, there was still. I think there was one. I think it was one of. I think it was in one of Jeff Hurst's books, 
whereas he mentions an instance where I think George Cohen allegedly had heard a conversation between Ramsey and Harold Shepherdson and then some of the other coaches as to whether, in fact, they should play more in the final. Oh, right. So, you know, you take it for granted now, of course. Yeah. But and it was only, it was like, you know, a friend of a friend type, that sort of conversation. Mm. It was never sort of, no one's actually come out and said as such, but it was like, you know, somebody earwigging a conversation year and years later. Again, you just think to yourself, wow, you know, things could have been different. Things could have been different. Absolutely. Well, things could have been been very different with with West Ham. I mean, with Ron being West Ham manager, he had the chance to buy Gordon Banks for the club, didn't he? Mm. Um, which which I, I never knew. No, I, and again, this I think he was virtually offered Gordon Banks yeah. because he knew. I think it was Matt Gillis, the Leicester manager, and it, it could have been a, a, a done deal. But because he'd already had an agreement with Kilmarnock to buy Bobby Ferguson, who was, I think, 20-year-old at the time, 20, 21-year-old, promising goalkeeper, but obviously not Gordon Banks. Mm. Because he had had that arrangement, he considered he could not break that arrangement. Now, it seems astounding now that a man could even, But to him, it was a matter of principle. He had an agreement, therefore he had to go ahead with it. And, and of course, you know, Banks never signed for West Ham, but could have done one of those what, what ifs. Exactly what could have been. I mean, he was very much a man of his word, wasn't he? Well, I think that was, I mean, as a as a, a human being, as a man, and yes, he was very much a, a moral upright. I mean, he was quite religious as well. Okay. I mean, he even missed one West Ham game because he was being confirmed. Oh, right. So, yes, he was, you know, he, he was certainly a, a very sort of upright character, yeah. Well, and, you know, and, and certainly a man. Anyway, that's why I say he reflected in, it, and he believed in treating other players as as men, as mm. individuals, as grown ups, which of course led to inevitable problems because they wouldn't. Well, this was one of the things that I thought about reading the book. Obviously, he had the the successful time in sort of the the mid sixties with West Ham. And then I got the impression that perhaps he should have left while the going was good, but he, he stuck it out for a little bit longer at West Ham until sort of the mid mid seventies, didn't he? Yeah, nineteen seventy four, and he, he went up. Well, he went upstairs, and John John Lyle became officially team manager. But they were un, they were unhappy years for the club, right? I mean, certainly the early 70s. I mean, Blackpool was the real, you know, the real pits. But they were unhappy years. And with hindsight, he would have been better advised to have gone elsewhere. Yeah. But, you know, he hung about, you know, you know, and went up, he went upstairs you know, for three years as general manager. And I think he was, as something of a purist coach, was becoming disillusioned with English football in a wider context. Because this was the era of Leeds United, mm. and as as we all know, I mean, anyone who's looked at football in the you know, the, the late seventies, Leeds United were a black and white side <laughs> or a marmite <laughs> side, if you yeah, prefer. Yeah. You know, you loved them, or you, there was no middle ground. Mm. Not you know, not like say a, you know, a club like today, for example. I, I suppose Liverpool, who 
you might not be Liverpool, but you could admire their their standard of Man City and obvious. You know, okay, forget the money, but yeah, you, know, you can yep. watch Man City and you can say there's a you know there's some beautiful football played on that switch. You watch Leeds United circa 71, 2, 3, that era. Yeah. And <laughs> you, yes, there, I mean, this is the frustration. There was such a lot of skill within that side. You know, no one could look at the likes of Johnny Giles and even Bremner. And, you know, it was, yes, they might kick you up in the air, but they could mm. kick a ball as well. Yeah. There was an awful lot. And, you know, Peter Lorimer, you know, Hunter, for all his faults, was a good defender. Let's not forget that. But, of course, they had this manager. And I think, you know, as part of the background for the book, you know, you'd read about Reevy. And apart from that, you know, he was known as, you know, the, the man for a bung. This was unfortunate. You know, he has yeah. his character. And I don't know whether it's, you know, it's come out in your, your context of, you know, him as England manager. But going back to, ooh, the early 60s, you know, stories of him trying to bribe other teams. And, yeah, you know, and these would crop up at, various intervals you know as the years went by in newspapers and so forth yeah left so a stain on leads really it, did. it wasn't just the way he left the job but the way you know, his whole career i mean the way he conducted his team on the pitch his background as an individual you know and his attitude towards money and and, and so forth it's sort of tainted him i mean there's a story which i meant in the book with you know, West Ham beat Leeds 7-0 in the League Cup tie in 1966, I think late 66. And afterwards, you know, Reavy goes into the dressing room actually to congratulate. And Greenwood, it can be a bit, you know, a bit pompous, as he admitted, was very dismissive. And Reavy goes back to the dressing room and says, you know, you will never lose to that man's team again. I mean, he took it so personally. It wasn't yeah. just a, a throwaway line. It was something he meant. Well, they didn't for until I think goes. I can't remember actually. It was a long time yeah. before they beat and they in the league, a league cup tie. But it was a you know this was the relationship they did have. You know it was even yeah. that even when they were club managers, you know they, they were never remotely close. Yeah. Well, I, I'm guessing just before we make this transition to England, you've mentioned Blackpool a couple of times, and for maybe those that aren't aware of of that incident, perhaps maybe just. Just outline what what that was. Um, uh, January the second, nineteen seventy one. West Ham were drawn away to Blackpool in the FA Cup third round. Blackpool then, I think, were bottom of the first division. The game was looked as though it might be um, called off because it was very icy, very very wintry, very icy. And four West Ham players, including Bobby Moore, went to a nightclub in Blackpool as a home by Brian London. Ex boxer and included Bobby Moore and Jimmy Greaves among, or amongst the sort of four because Greaves had joined them the previous season. And West Ham lost the game 4 0, played atrociously. If that wasn't bad enough, started rumoured stories started to appear about these players who had been seen. And as things sort of happened, to give you an idea, this was the same day of the Ibrox tragedy. Right. 60, 70 people were killed at Ibrox Stadium at a Rangers Celtic game. There seemed to be ultimately more coverage of this West Ham incident than Ibrox, which right. you think about it is, mm. you know, in terms of a sense of proportion. Anyway, to move the story, as far as West Ham were concerned, Greenwood got to hear of these stories because he wasn't aware of them at first. 
And he wanted to come down hard. He wanted to sack all four players. In the event that the board persuaded him not to do so, I think Moore was, I think, fined two weeks' wages. Greaves maybe sort of won. And the, Brian Deere was dropped and never played for West Ham again. The other player was Clyde Best, who was didn't drink alcohol. And he played, so he was allowed sort of to play on. And But apart from that, again, there were all sorts of recriminations that, you know, sort of a morsel versus, well, the Greenwood, it was, if like it was his fault, he should have handled the situation better. Greaves, in one of, you know, in his numerous books that have come out under his name since, has virtually said the same thing, that, you know, and he lost a respect for him. So there's the incident itself and the after effects, but you could look at it in the context of where West Ham were going as a club and had been for what a number of years, i.e., in relegation battles for many of those years, poor players had been bought. I mean, I could go on for ages. I won't. <laughs> in England, you know, which, which I mean, you, you mentioned you know, Gordon Banks. They bought Bobby Ferguson, who was a, on a good day, was a good goalkeeper, but wasn't consistent enough. So that's the sort of thing. And there were innumerable others as well, which came and went. Yeah. And so there was a sort of feeling that you know, it had lost its way as a club, as a team. So Blackpool, if you like, was the culmination of all of this. The frustrations of the supporters. Bobby Moore, by this time, wants to get away. I mean, Tottenham were rumoured to be looking, you know, sort of buying him, had been for a number of years. Greaves was there, already deep into his alcoholism. And at the end of that season, retired. I think only 31. And of course... Right. As, you know, we know of his own personal story, how that, you know, how that developed. So, you know, you're in this sort of very black place. Not just we've lost 4-0 at Blackpool. We've had a few drinks. Okay, bad boys, you know, yeah. you serve two weeks suspension, we move on. There was so much else happening that this was just symptomatic, if you like. And it wasn't unusual. You wouldn't, you didn't, you couldn't have looked at it and said, my God, no one expected that at West, you know, if you knew what was happening. It was almost a case of when, not if. Right. So that was really where uh, I would say it fits into that you know, unique down point in West Ham's history. All right, they've lost other FA Cup ties. Of course they have. But this one is unique because of what happened afterwards and, and as I say, where it came from. Yeah. Well, Ron Greenwood, as, as you mentioned, he became sort of disillusioned with with the way football was in just in general. Um, and as you say, he moved upstairs at West Ham. And and we kind of get to 1977, where Don Revy had popped over to, to Dubai and, and the United Arab Emirates. And and then England were were looking for another manager. And it was Harold Thompson, the, the FA chairman, who, who apparently called West Ham about. Ron Greenwood, who, as I say, was was upstairs at the time and just wanted him to stand in as as caretaker manager until a, a new appointment was made. That's very much it, because I think Thompson knew Ron Greenwood from way back when he was at Oxford University, so we're going back to the mid-50s. And again, it's come out for research for the book, which I haven't appreciated. Of course, Thompson had a certain re- reputation, both as an autocrat and I think you know, a number of people, FA employees, would say how he basically was a shit, mm. to be blunt, as a yeah. person yeah. to deal with. And, of course, he was also a bit of a sexist. 
I mean, yeah. you know, all the things that you know you wouldn't want your boss. Yeah. He had in spades, which of course he was a because but because of who he was, distinguished academic. I could even talk Margaret Thatcher, make of that what you will. He was chairman of the FA. So, and of course, England were in a fix because we're talking now July, matter of weeks before the season starts, need to find some sort of manager on at least an interim basis. And Ron Greenwood was available. All right, he was general manager, but yeah, it was a, bit, a sort of nebulous role. He wasn't team manager. So the call went into West Ham and they had this conversation and he was appointed interim manager. But this was also at the time where Brian Clough was touted around as well. Now, Clough was very much the people's choice as manager. Yeah. I think if you'd have asked your average fan in the street, who did you want? Brian Clough would have been top of that poll, no doubt about it. He obviously was successful, but of course he was Brian Clough. You know, you couldn't avoid Brian Clough. <laughs> He's that sort of personality. He was there. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you, and of course, you again, you'd had that the situation, you know, sort of lead. So, and I think Greenwood was aware of this. I think when he took the job, I think he, he probably felt that, you know, I will do this until the end of the season. I'll get at something of our self-respect. Because I think, not only Weavy leaving the way he did, but English football was in a bad place. Yeah. You know, the feeling that, you know, that the style of football was turgid. You know, obviously there was a hooliganism. Yeah. So the whole image of English football from, the, if you like, you know, the top to a fair way down was not a very good one. You know, you, you weren't taking on a happy ship. So they wanted someone that, you know, would take this role on, could be... Dependence to do a job for you know, a short period, and obviously would give them the time to cast the net around yeah. for a full-time manager. When Greenwood came in, there was still the opportunity for the the seventy-eight World Cup, but it was always going to be a, a well, hard ask. I think that yeah. Yeah, it was over the chair, but so I think Italy were always the favourites to qualify from sort of England's group because mm. I think the weak group were Luxembourg. And the fixtures worked out that you know, England played Italy in the last game, and then it, it, Italy would play Luxembourg at home. So it was it was it was always a chance, a possibility. But yeah. I felt the feeling was that the odds favoured Italy strongly, not I least think, because you know they'd beaten England two 0 in Rome. Yeah, as you say, he he brought on this different perspective as England manager, and, and he he got the the players on board really, rather than the era that towards the end of Don Revy's era where the players weren't perhaps playing for him over sort of initially Ron Greenwood got the England players on side and almost a happy camp really. I think so I think he did I think he, he treated them if you like as he would have the West Ham players of all because these were international players they were the best well players in England and they were successful sort of players you know they they had a different sort of attitude and they welcomed that change of Sort of, sort of behavior. I mean, he would say, "Well, if 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 they want to go and have a pint of beer, they could have a sort of pint. I'm not going to sort of, sort of stand over them." And I think they respected that change of attitude. Yeah. You know, compared with particularly we with, with Don Revy, much more heavy-handed. Yeah. So that was almost in his interim, not caretaker stint, but he wasn't really official. But in true FA style. They didn't really tell him officially. He heard that he'd got the job full time on the radio in his car. Yes. 
I know this wonderful story. I think he was in having lunch with his wife in Brighton and turned on the radio afterwards and heard that he'd been appointed a yeah, full-time manager. But the FA in their wisdom had not got around to telling him yet. I, I know, you know, we're in the age pre-mobile phones and yeah, so on yeah. and so forth, but you'd have thought, you know, they might have made sure that he knew before the media knew. But yes, and, they, and again, I think that that's a process by which, I mean, Clough by then was very much still, you know, the, the people's sort of favourite. And there are various stories of, you know, him appearing at his interview at the FA, coming out convinced that, you know, he'd got the job. I mean, there are various aspects of this, because I'm not quite sure which way is the right way. He convinced he'd got the, the, yeah, the job. Yeah. And then when he found he hadn't, saying, well, you know, I didn't want it anyway. I, you know, they were just a load of idiots. And I think they recognised, I think, actually was that he would have been a very difficult man to deal with. I imagine so. To put themselves in that position. One interesting thing, once he'd got the job full time, and if you kind of look at when he was with West Ham and and obviously the the methods that he had at West Ham and that came into play in England under South Ramsey's period of time, as you mentioned, like the goals and, and the players. But going forward, one of the first things he'd done was suggesting that Bobby Robson to be the the B team manager alongside Don Howe, who who would then become his successor. So he's, he's almost had these little England nuances along the way. I think, I think again, this is his European hat because no. you'd have situations, for example, particularly in Germany, where you had um, Helmut Schmoen, who was the manager in the '66 World Cup. But before he left, you know, everybody knew who his successor would be. There yeah. was yeah, there was a there was a process there. Which is very much new the way, and I think he saw this as something that you know we should be doing sort of here, rather than just you know suddenly okay as 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 it happened all oh, right the Revy situation was unique, but there should be this progression of of sort of managers you know bringing on people so people like Robson Don Howe Terry Venables, yep, bringing them into the England setup at various levels. And and also, as we're seeing now, I think with sort of Southgate and the FA trying to everybody to play in a similar style. I mean, we call it now the DNA, you know, the mm. current buzzword, isn't it? Yes. The England DNA or the club's DNA. Yeah, but this this idea that you know you're under 17s or whatever should be playing in a similar style that, to the full team. So there is succession progress. So as as players move up, they don't meet a sudden change of styles they would at like, say at the club level but they they can see a, a likeness there which so that you you get that sort of basis they sort of they can sort of fit in with that and he's he saw that as sort of happening you know but importantly because by that time when he was appointed he was in his early 60s so he knew he wouldn't be around at all he didn't yeah. see it as like you know 10 or 20 year career he saw it as a relatively had he even been successful i think he would have still have left in 1982 they won the world cup he saw that as a sort of pitch. So having a successor and hopefully even further ones down the line was it was important to you know the, the not just the FA but you know English football and mm. you know at that international level. Yeah. And he was very, very keen on having that line of succession. Very, very forward thinking. I mean, whilst a lot of people will will probably think the World Cup of nineteen eighty two after not being in it in 74 and 78 but there was actually a tournament 
before that Euro 1980 that he he managed to qualify us for I guess for the first first competitive football since 1970 the World Cup so yeah. um, he he took us there. I know it's one of those tournaments which I think you know football historians would rather forget. It was awful. I mean England you know they they drew with Belgium, but the game was dominated by the English fans. Yeah as had been the case in some of the qualifying games as well. I mean, hooliganism was still, you know, unfortunately knocking its way around Europe, wearing you know, a Union Jack. So you've got that. And it wasn't a tournament, which I think is now to remember sort of fondly for the style of sort of football. It was sort of, okay, compared with the European Championship now, it's fairly truncated. I mean, mm. they sort of played three, you know, they played sort of three games. But the, the football as a whole was poor. I mean, you you don't or you didn't have now, if you like, the, you know, the, what you would have now, that you know, the wall-to-wall television coverage. I mean, England games were sort of covered. I mean, there was a lot of optimism. To be fair, going into the tournament, I think you know, feeling you know, the England team were in a very good place. No, you know, they were a good team and they could do well. But again, they went into you know against the Belgians, who they sort of watched, underestimated, possibly struggled to draw against again this background. So. It wasn't, if you like, you know, the most sort of notable of you know English styles. But I think you know, in the context of the tournament as a whole, you know, I think it, I think if you know, probably if you look at any of the histories of the Euros, nineteen eighties in terms of entertainment quality of football, I would put you pretty well at the bottom, you know, yeah. near the bottom. <laughs> and not just because I'm not wearing an England hat, but just you know, just yes. looking at the, the tournament as if you like, you know, where would you put it in the you know, in the history going back to nineteen sixty. I would say it would be, Fairly it would rank nice. quite. It was nice they got there. Yeah. Yeah. No. But just, yeah I mean, just, <laughs> just to mention England, what they've done there, as you say, they drew a Belgium one or lost to Italy by a goal to nil and beat Spain 2 1. Spain 82 was, was then on the horizon. Um, and I think something, just before we get on onto that, something I think just as important, he gave Viv Anderson his debut um, in a game against Czechoslovakia a couple of years before in 1978. Viv Anderson obviously is is known as the the first Black England player. Well, in, interesting. Two silence on that. I think there's there is an argument that again another West Ham player, John Charles, played for the England youth team. Oh, yeah. the, uh, so, and there are those. I won't, I won't come into the argument that technically he was the first English, albeit it was the youth team. But yes, yes certainly yes. Anderson and the senior. But but the other thing is, is as well, which I think is a big positive in Greenwoods, is that in his West Ham days, he had in 1972 three black players on the pitch. Right. There were a game against Spurs on April the 1st, I think, 1972, at a time when there were, I think I read only something like 10 to 12 black players in the whole of the first division. So wow. we're talking you know, small numbers, not, you know, I mean, today you take it for granted. Yes. You, know, yes. you think twice, but in 1972, Clyde Best, of course, was one of them. It was very unusual. And you know, he, he did have this colorblind attitude. It wasn't wow. something he was doing, you know, or I must be political correct. Yeah. It is something he genuinely believed in, and I think the evidence is there. Yeah, you know, going well back into his West Ham days, particularly with Clyde Best and the way he the way he treated him. 
So there is sort of sort of that, and I think yes, with Anderson as as well. But you still can be you know, reading, you know, sort of behind it. You know, there was still sort of a certain amount of disquiet amongst certain of the FA. They still weren't convinced of the priority of black players, and I think again it's part of a wider issue at sort of the time as well. And you know, that's huge towards race because it was still a period of, you know, if you read you know, biographies of, you know, John Barnes and other players, the way they were treated. And unfortunately, West Ham, I mean, this is a paradox, you know, on the pitch, they had three black players. Off the pitch, they were one of the most racist crowds in, fo- in English football. Yeah. So, you know, that was, but I think, yes, I think, you know, the Anderson sort of thing as well. And I, and I think that campaign, you know, 80 to 82 at World Cup qualifying. It started off very badly. And I think, you know, I think the famous one, of course, is Norway, where they yeah, lost 2-1. Yeah. And the broadcast, this very famous rant, which I reproduce in the book, which you have to listen to it. Right? You read it, it sounds okay. But when you, it's when you hear it, you think, <laughs> he, he went off on one. Didn't and it's he? become famous or infamous. But, okay, we look, we can laugh at it now, but at the time, it really was... Because you know, Norway were a very poor internationally, they were not the Norway of now. You know, they were really at you know, the bottom of the you know the international school. I mean, the sort of team they met before and you know not four or five goals fast quite easily, and here they are going to you know to Oslo and losing two one. And of course, then you get the incident where you know on, on you know on the plane back in May, I think from a loss in Switzerland, he said he was going to resign, and when he got to Luton told the players and they effectively said no you know you mustn't resign you've got to stick with it and that was the um, respect that the players had gained for it i think it shows you know the respect you know that you know that they had they could easily have said okay you know we'll, we'll carry on after all we had another season to go so i think that shows a degree of respect as well and also i think sort of finally you can see you know how much luck plays a part because by then england were not the favorites to qualify I think I'm not sure if it's Switzerland. I think or I can't I can't remember the exact sequence of results. So I think I'm right in saying that Switzerland drew in Romania, and I think beat them at home, which right. allowed England this unexpected opportunity to qualify. And to that they had to beat Hungary at home, which they did one nil. So there was a certain amount of luck, and the story of that Ron Greenwood had bought a tie when he played in Switzerland and he went around wearing it for days on end. It like became his lucky tie. Right. <laughs> because they'd done him a favour. Yeah. <laughs> and England managed to get to, to Spain. But it was a close run thing. I mean, whereas in you know, for the Euros they qualified quite easily. It was, you know, the tournament was letting down. For the 82 World Cup, it was a struggle. You know, they were losing to teams which, you know, they maybe should not have lost it. I mean Norway, I think they lost in I think they lost in Romania. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think they may have lost so you know they lost away to Switzerland. So it was it was touch and go. Tough going. But but made it they did. And even when they got there, because of the, the timing of it, 1982, obviously we're talking here, and the Falklands War, there was a few things going on at the time where perhaps England maybe were not as as welcome to Spain as they should have been, but he put a lot. Ron Green would put a lot of effort into 
to making it maybe a little bit more comfortable and doing the, the PR side of things. He, he did. He'd done he some was... recce's there and security arrangements and cooking arrangements to to make it flow a lot better. I mean, he even took a side to play the local, because they were playing in Bilbao, he took a side to play the, you know, the local team, Athletic Bilbao, in a friendly, just to sort of, you know, it's really like, you know, push that, yes, that PR sort of, you know, sort of wagon out, out there to show that, you know, we can be friendly. Yeah, we're not all hooligans. Yeah, you know, we're, we're not. All, we're not here to ransack your town. And I think he did a lot. You know, a lot, and and also you know, keeping through you know, with local sort of contacts to make sure that you know they were, if you like, sympathetic you know, to the team rather than outrightly hostile. And I think you know, it, it it worked. And you know, certainly where you know where they were in the qualifying groups in Bilbao, so that, you know, they had some you know, good results. Well, those results were the first one after being not in a World Cup since 1970. It took England 27 seconds to, to yeah, score. Brian Robson scored. Was I it remember watching, I still remember watching it on TV. I think it, when at our work, we all sat in the boardroom with the TV on watching right. you know, this. Because it was June, it was sort of hot day here. And suddenly, you know, England sort of scored. It was like disbelief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people were still coming in. Thinking, what was that? This was a, a tournament where, as I say, they went on to beat France 3-1, beat the Czech Republic 2-1, and then Kuwait by a goal to nil. So they were through the group stages. So after not being in a World Cup for, for so long, it's certainly gone in the right way. And and this tournament had a, a strange way that you got through the first group and then you were into the next group, which consisted of West Germany and Spain. Yeah. And... I personally don't remember the tournament. I was, I was too young for it. But we we exited the tournament after two nil nil draws. I think probably the game against West Germany was probably the one where you think he got it wrong because it was a very sterile game. Both effectively both teams. I mean, the Germans were quite happy with nil nil, right. and I think though the two key players were Kevin Keegan and Trevor Brooking both of whom had been injured. Mm. And I think he didn't want to risk them because he felt if they did, you know, they broke down, that would be it. So he held them back. And England just didn't have that edge. Got sucked into this sort of negativism, you know, that the, 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 the Germans were happy with. And so it ended a boring nil-nil. Mm. And so the final game, I think they had to beat Spain by 2-0 because of the other, other results. And famously, you know, the two men came on, both missed chances, nil-nil. Well, that was it. Without no. losing a game. Without losing a game. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. It's like a pub quiz, isn't it? How can you, how can you exit the World Cup and not lose a game? Yeah. 1982, England. <laughs> well, one thing with the, that I didn't know, again, from reading the book, was before that West Germany game in that second round, Bobby Robson was announced as yeah. the next England manager. I and mean, I think I, I've never heard of a situation where the England manager has been announced. I'm trying to think off the top of my head before the, the other one has departed. Well, I think, again, I think Greenwood had made it plain that this was, you know, win or lose, he was going to leave at the yeah. end of that yeah. tournament. He wasn't going to go on. And therefore, it made no sense just to you know, keep things running on and running on. Because obviously, he'd been appointed in the summer. The tournament was you know, running in the summer, so it would have meant someone had been appointed in the summer. It just made, you know, there's nothing to be gained. You might as well say, right, give it to Robson. 
he would have the chance at least to get his feet partially under the table before we got into you know he'd have at least a, you know, a close season where he could get things get things together rather than suddenly be dropped into it as he'd been in back in 1977 yeah so i think that was you know you know, that was always the you other know, situation yes it strikes one as given you know the nature of england the england managers yeah. in the way yes but that was for, for once there was actually thought and a succession in place so he yeah. he departed the the england job at the end of of that tournament and afterwards he he said a phrase that you often hear now of of maybe departing england managers that he would call the position the impossible job and you often hear that managers yeah say that but as we say we he left the the world cup without losing a game and after the debacle with don revy that he was a manager that left england with his head held high i guess you could yeah, also say was... that alf ramsey he he left in a under a cloud yeah i think he could, he could point out oh, yes he hadn't won a tournament but who, who has far from Ramsey. So, yeah, we won't go into that one. He had nurtured a group of players. They qualified for tournaments, which they hadn't qualified for from a number of years. So I think it was you know, a very positive way. He'd nurtured his successor. It wasn't an accident that Robson was chosen. He'd put this structure in place. It was continuity there. He was trying to look you know, beyond himself. It wasn't all about me. It was about you know English football and what happens next, particularly at the international level. And I think he you know could walk out of the front door you know, with his head up. You know, he yeah, he wouldn't have, he didn't need to sneak you know sneak round the back and look on a job you know he had done to the best of his ability. Well, he left with with a record of playing fifty five. He won thirty three, drew twelve, and lost ten. Which I think is a very reasonable record i think so yeah just just you know just look at the naked statistic i mean you as i say as we touched on slightly just earlier you look at those some of those defeats particularly leading up to the 82 world cup but then you could say okay maybe he deserved the luck that eventually he got because obviously if the results had gone other way in terms of romania and switzerland over two games england would not have qualified it would have been no England at World Cup. Things could have worked out tremendously differently. They didn't, fortunately. Luck was on his side, and, and as I say, he could walk out the front door and you know, and hold it open for his successor. Yeah, which is, I think, fairly unique in the annals of English oh, football. I think you're right. We're talking now, obviously, 1982 when he he left, and he went on to, by all accounts, a little bit of media work, but was was quite happy just to quietly just have his own life um, away yeah, from the, the lights. I think he was. I think he wasn't a man who would, though he had a, you know, a good relationship on the whole with journalists, he wasn't you know, anti the media. Hmm. I think, you know, both in his West Ham and his England days, I mean, the, you know, the you know, stories, he, he would sit around you know, with groups of journalists, just chew the cud, not just like five-minute press conference. All right, he had his testy moments, clearly given you know what was happening but he did like the you know, journalist company and they liked him and I, I think journalists would admit you know they learned a lot from him but i think he decided that he's by then he was in his mid-60s 
you, you know, he'd had a long career. He'd had he'd had enough. I think he he didn't even hand on his phone number. He wasn't there. You know, he wasn't a rent a quote. He yeah. wasn't interested in appearing on chat shows or whatever, or a pundit. He, you know, he he kept his hand in to a limited extent, but he really wasn't interested in being you know the center of attention. As far as he was concerned, he'd done the job. He'd left the right way. He now had a successor. And I think, and again, instances I, I touch on in the book, both West Ham and with England, where he would turn up at England games. I think we both when Harry Redknapp was manager and Billy Bonds, but he wouldn't sort of push his way into the office and say, this is how you should do it, Harry, or Billy, this is how you should. He was just content just to go as a spectator. You know, he wouldn't, he didn't want to impose himself on his successor. That wasn't his, he didn't see that as his role. As being like maybe maybe Matt Busby was at Man United, you know, when he left, or even Alex Ferguson today, arguably, you know, that man always in the background that you have to be aware of. He, he wasn't interested in that. You know, he'd he'd gone. You know, it was it was there. You know, a new generation now, a new yeah. man. Yeah. Well, he took himself off and and lived his own life, and then sadly, come the age of eighty four, he, he began to struggle with. With Alzheimer's, unfortunately, and, and passed away in 2006, the 8th of February 2006, didn't he? Well, he'd suffered from Alzheimer's for a number of years. I'd had to move into a nursing home, which is why that it was local, because that he was living with his wife in near Brighton. You mm. know, they had a flat overlooking Hove cricket ground. But it was, you know, because of the Alzheimer's, it was very difficult to look after him. So he moved into a nursing home, which was uh, nearer his daughter. Right. So, uh, yeah, and sort of, yeah, sadly, sort of, yeah, sort of passed away in, yeah, February of 2006. Not, I think, I, can, I think, I think Ramsey died around about the same time as well. I think, you know, was, you know again, there's the links between the two men. Yeah. And the other thing, I think they're actually buried some like 10 miles apart. Are they? In, you know, in, in Suffolk. Right. I think it's in Ipswich, not surprisingly. And, yeah, so I, it was just one of those sort of, links if you like you know, as you, you know you look for coincidences and mm. links within sort of sport and sort of the, the the two you know the two men i always find it's one of their final resting places given what they both men gave to english football in the early 60s i find it somehow fitting that they should have their final resting place so near to one yeah. another just uh, you know, oh, romantic imagination yeah, no, I understand what you say. Well, I mean, after after reading reading the book and and indeed having a a chat with yourself and to look at the book and and see its sort of subtitle that it is a biography of football's forgotten manager. It it almost seems a little bit harsh, really, to to have him as the forgotten manager. People should be. I think it is. I think both as an international, but also as a club manager as well. I mean, even you know when I writing the book covering the West Ham ones, there seems to be a certain ambivalent attitude towards him. Yeah. I mean, he's not dismissed. I mean, you couldn't dismiss a man who's, who's one thing. Of course. But at the same time, you know, he doesn't seem to evoke the same warmth as nostalgia as, say, Man United fans would look back at Busby or Liverpool fans would look back at Shankly. Yeah. You know, there's an acknowledgement without... It's almost a grudging... So, uh, admonishment. 
And so I think that's one of the things I felt that behind me writing the book was to actually you know, flesh out what he actually, you know, it wasn't just those trophies. It's what he'd done. I mean, he put the club on the, you know, on the national and international map. And because as a coach, that contributed as well on an you know, international level. And that carried over into the English manager's job, yeah. you know, later on. And I think, you know, his, as we've just sort of talked about, he left that in a better place than when he took it on, which I think is, always, in football is difficult, isn't it? It's, yes, I, think yes. it's, I think with most managers, by the time, you know, they leave, they might have had success, but maybe, you know, they don't necessarily leave on their own terms. Right. I mean, Guardiola probably will, Klopp probably could if he left today. But most managers don't. You know, they, they get kicked out for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. I don't get and so and so on, you know. So whatever they have achieved is sort of somehow sort of sort of overlooked. I think you know, you know Greenwood left on his own terms, and I think you know left a you know a legacy. Both were in the club, albeit they did their best to squander it, and have done. Yeah. That's another story. But I think we're we're in the England context. You know, he took them out of a dark place, took them to tournaments, and left them. You know, in a better position, both as you know, as a playing entity, but also as a reputational. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, they weren't seen as you know what they were or had been back in the mid seventies. So, I feel yeah, you know, yes, he is forgotten, but I think for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I think that's why I felt it was it. You know, I I enjoyed writing it because you know, there was a yes, he had obviously he had his faults. Yeah, you know, as an as an individual as a manager, but. I think that that if you were to put down the other, the mark sheet would be more positives than negatives. Yeah, both well, at club and international level. Yeah, well, I think you'd be, I think you'd be really proud of of what you've written there, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. It's not the only book that you've written, though, is it? You, you've written a, a few others, and I've got a few in the pipeline, I believe. Yeah, well, I, I said I I wrote one which was a guide to the Rugby League World Cup. Right. Back in 2013, which essentially was a club guide, because I, I knew someone who was there. And, and as I touched on earlier, that you know, the chap you're interviewing for the for Bobby Robson, yeah, hopefully we'll be publishing a book I've written on rugby union, which is a history of rugby's Heineken Cup competition. Okay. Which is the you know, they're equivalent of the European Cup or Champions League. Yeah. Hopefully that will come out this year. All going uh, well. Uh, I'm sure there'll be be listeners who are who'd be interested in reading that first of all I just want to say thank you to yourself for, for your time uh, I must also say thank you to to the guys at Pitch Publishing which is the the publishers of the book and, and I believe you can you can purchase it through there or, or I guess on any good book book yeah. any good bookshop as they say yeah any good bookstore yeah no it's a pleasure it's good to talk to you no, I've, I've really enjoyed it. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much. No, my pleasure. Thank you so much to Mike Miles there, author of Ron Greenwood, a biography of football's forgotten manager. As we mentioned, it's available through Pitch Publishing and through all good bookshops. Now, the series doesn't stop there. I'm already reading up on Ron Greenwood's successor, which is interesting from my point of view, as I've reached a point now where I'm beginning to remember the incidents and the games involved, and the manager. 
as I'm sure many others will be as well. I'm looking forward to bringing you that podcast in the very near future. But please, no pressure. As I said, I'm not the fastest reader. Thank you, as always, for listening. I do hope you've enjoyed it. All the previous episodes are still available at threelionspodcast.com or your chosen podcast provider. And that includes the episodes on Walter Winterbottom, Alf Ramsey and Don Revy. And I hope you can join me for the next England-based episode, which will be coming your way very soon. Don't forget, you can find the show on all the usual social media channels, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A follow and a review on the likes of iTunes. That would also be really appreciated. So until the next time, take care, look after yourselves. Cheers. Cheers.